Well, I think we'll get started then. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, welcome, everybody. And uh, I want to remind you of a couple of things here, uh, if, if it's all right. I, I would like to, uh, Joel, can I still write on yeah. this t-shirt? I want to remind, I'm not going to do everything I did last week, but I want to remind you of a couple of things here that are really important um, for us to, to I believe, really understand what's going on in these chapters of, of, of Exodus, but also I think that a lot of this can be applicable to the kind of society that we, uh, I think, should be interested in building. What's different is Israel, as God is setting up uh, the, the, the nation, he's delivered them out of Egypt and all of the things that we've been charting through our book. Uh, Israel at this time is a theocracy. It is not a monarchy. There's no king yet. Uh, that will come with Saul and then, of course, David and so on. But this was the theocracy. And in that theocracy, the arrangement is God, the priests, and the people. That is the arrangement of this theocracy. There is no king. God is their king. Uh, theocracy is a Greek word that has two, theos and krakos, or rule of God. That's literally what that means. Anyway, and so God will rule through the priests who will then intercede with the people. Now, I hope you understand those arrows. Can you, you see what I'm doing there? No, it's God. God uh, God has the relationship with the political priests, perform the sacrifices, teach the people the law of God, and so on. And then they teach this to the people. And then the people... Uh, as they offer their sacrifices and so on, then they inter, uh, intercede uh, with God. So that's the relation. When the king comes, then you're going to have a different arrangement. It'll be God, the king, and then prophets, priests, and people. Now, I'm going to write all that in the work because we did that last time. So in this theocracy that God is setting up, that theocracy is based on his moral law, which we have already studied, succinctly summarized in the Ten Commandments. And then that moral law of God is to lead to the ethical structure of Israel. I, period, is Israel. Don't worry all that out. And, right, we have dealt with this which reflects the character of God, reflects, reflects his values and his virtues, which are then itemized in the Ten Commandments for a detailed relationship with God. The remaining six deal with the relationship to one another. Let's put it the way Jesus put it. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The vertical, love your neighbor as yourself. And the Ten Commandments give us the moral law of God of how we do that. It is fleshed out in great detail in the rest of the law, and even as you're in the New Testament, when the, um, the, the uh, law has been fulfilled by Jesus, the law is no longer operative, <clears throat> you still see those same ethical standards revealed over and over and over again. Truth, faithfulness in marriage, uh, the, the protection of private property, that should not steal, etc., etc. So what we're studying right now, we're going to be on this for another couple of weeks or so, how these ethical standards for Israeli society, which reflect the moral law of God, which indicate how this is to operate, have some really important applicational lessons for us today. And that's what I want to try to draw out. This is a sermon. We spent a lot more time on this last week, but a couple of you weren't here. So does this make sense? If it doesn't make sense, let me know, because this is really important understanding what we're studying in terms of the larger framework. Okay? All right. I've given a minute or two to distill down so it can percolate up as questions. But to, you must understand, so I'm going to use this word quite a bit, you must understand that God is setting up a theocracy. And you must understand that his moral law, summarizing the Ten Commandments, are the basis for the kind of society he wants to build in Israel. Okay? 
And as we said, uh, and I don't think I'm going to write all that up again. I had all that last week. But this, this, um, this kind of ethical structure for the society he wants to build, God wants to build, is based on four major points or four major concepts or four major principles. Justice, restitution, accountability, and equity. Remember those four? They, those, those are the four principles or concepts which inform the kind of ethical structure God wants to build in Israel which reflect his moral law and fleshed out in everything. Everything they did was to reflect this. So a society, he wants to build a society based on justice, a society based on uh, restitution and accountability, and then equity. Okay? Now, we pretty if you're following in your uh, the uh, note packet, I'm on page 13, and we may get into check page 14. And I, I'm not, you know, some of these, the details of some of this is, uh, is, is almost overwhelming. Uh, I know that. But it's, it, it's to reflect that God is really interested in the details. He's interested in establishing a kind of society where, now whether everybody accepts it and, and practices it, of course, is another question. Uh, that's part of what gets them into trouble <laughs> and why they get into exile and so on. But a, a society that really reflects God's values, his virtues, and what's important to him. Now, I'm a Christian, and I, I think every one of you are, but I recognize something that the United States no longer um, could we speak of it as being a Christian nation. Christians are still in the nation, but uh, for the first time since 1607, Protestant Christians are now in a minority, below 50%, which is in itself may or may not be important to you. But it's just it's an illustration of how significant the change is in America. And so even though a lot of the principles and, and, and applicational principles I would like to draw out of some of this, I still think it's wise for America to try to build a society and a system of justice based on these principles. And so the degree to which we follow them I hope you'll understand this sentence. The degree to which we follow them will produce God's common grace blessings. The degree to which we refuse to follow them will produce dysfunction, pain, hurt, and disobedience. You follow me? And so that's where we are now. We are seeing our nation departing from these principles and going a different way. And I, you know, I... I'm not, I don't know if I want to get into any of this, and I certainly don't want to get into the politics of this, but it's, it's just a society that, whether it's conscious or not, is following these principles. God's common grace blessing will come. Those who reject them, then, as the way he built his world, there will be dysfunction, hurt, and all of the things that I think we are starting to see more and more of in our culture. All right, I did a whole bunch of introductory stuff um, that we did last week in detail. So, everybody with me? All right, now, again, I, I, I apologize in one sense for some of this because it really gets detailed, but it's, I'm trying to get you to see this. If you don't understand this, then a lot of this doesn't make as much sense. I want to go in Chapter 21. We've covered much of Chapter 21 but chapter 21, verse 12 through 32, deals with personal injuries, either intentional or unintentional. How are you supposed to handle them? To achieve a society of justice, restitution, accountability, and equity. And so we saw what happens when uh, the kind of capital offenses that you can see, it's verse 12 through 17, then... In 18 and 19, if there's, if there's people quarreling or fighting and someone gets injured, how do you handle that? And then we looked at 
verse 22 and following, if two men are fighting and a woman is unintentionally hurt and she's pregnant, she miscarriages, is there accountability? Yes. And that verse, by the way, verse 22 through 25, gives us a, a 22, excuse me, and 23, gives us a sense of God's view of prenatal life. That's important to him. And therefore, he wants it to be important in Israel. Now, verse 23, but if there's a serious injury, you are to take life for life. An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. This is restitution. This is justice. We, this has been called, I can't remember if I wrote this up here or not, this has been called talionic justice. The Latin, lex talionis. But talionic justice is something, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and so on. This is the system of justice in the Bible. This is the system of justice that is detailed throughout the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. This is the system of justice that God wants to be for us to follow. There is accountability and there's restitution. Um, Jim, does that mean that uh, God uh, approves of the death penalty? I was hoping no one would ask me that. Um, <laughs> Let me let me answer it this way. My answer has nothing to do with how the United States practices capital punishment. That's not that's not the question I'm answering. You're asking the question: Does God? Let me. You didn't use that phrase, but let me use it. Does God endorse capital punishment? Yeah, I which guess is, uh, I don't expect you to know God's very intimate thoughts, but. Um, I was wondering if we were following it with our laws. Well, of, of course we're not. But God, I believe, I wrote a book on ethics, and one of the chapters I deal with this issue. And again, not defending how the United States practices it, but defending the concept is tied, Woody, to talionic justice. That, that's just the scenario. It's in, it's in Genesis 9 when Noah and his family get off the ark. If in a premeditated fashion you take the life of an image bearer of God, you have lost the right to live. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, then the, the law code that we're just, the real details of this is in Leviticus, but um, if there's involuntary manslaughter or accidental or all that, then there's, there's still accountability and st even the need of restitution. But, um, I mean, the answer to your question in terms of how God looks at it is human beings are created by God in, the image, in his image. They are of infinite worth and value. And if you take a life in a premeditated fashion, you know, malice of forethought, you thought it through, you, you lose the right to live because you have killed an image bearer. The Bible speaks of the image and likeness of God. The problem in the United States, and this has been a problem ever since the nation was formed, is this is a union of now 50 states, and each state has a different set of laws or, or ways in which, and so, you know, you can do a capital crime in one state, step across the state line and do the same crime in that state, and it's not capital crime. That's not justice. That's not a system, of, and it's the problem, uh, maybe I should say the challenge of our federal union. The only capital offenses in the United States that are national, if you try to assassinate the president, and succeed, or certain now, after the Patriot Act, certain terrorist acts, they can be capital offenses where the United States government would carry out that execution. But you know what's happening in our country, it's happening in our state. It's becoming more and more difficult to, um, to adhere to that as a, as a principle of justice. And part of it is, again, because of the thoroughgoing inconsistency of how capital uh, crimes are carried out, uh, capital offenses are carried out, because we're a union of 50 states, and each state has different laws. It's very, very, very confusing. It's very difficult if you're talking about justice. Glenn? We lose sight of state sovereignty. I'm sorry, you had your hand. We've lost sight of state sovereignty. Uh, yes, that, that's We've correct. We've lost sight of that. We, well, I think that's right. And, yeah. 
<laughs> no, I, I know. Years ago, do you know the name Chuck Colson? He is the Lord now, but he had founded, uh, he had been in Watergate and went to jail and all that, found Christ and utter transformational uh, life. It's quite stunning. He'd gotten uh, involved in founding Prison Fellowship. And one time he was asked to address the state legislature in Texas. And he was addressing the state legislature of Texas based on justice and principles of justice in the criminal justice system. And what, what Colson, he did something really clever. Without using Bible verses, without quoting from the Bible or anything like this, he took some of the things I was talking about, about system of justice, accountability, restitution. He said the importance of restitution, the importance of accountability, and the importance of whatever you do when a person violates a, a law of society, that you're, you're not only looking at how do we try to restore this person, which, you know, theoretically is what the criminal justice system is supposed to do, send somebody to jail to restore, to become a good citizen, let them out to start to vote again and all that. But as you know, the recidivism rate is about 80% in a typical prison in the United States. And so he started sh- summarizing some of the stuff from, from the law, some of the principles around which you organize a system of justice where there is clear restitution, you violate anything that harms any person or the property, there is the immediate, the immediate demand of restitution. You must set that up. And you must make that person accountable for that. So, and all the and he, he was inundated after his talk with members of the legislature saying, where'd you get are there books we can read? Is where can we find this? And he said, Are you really interested? Do you really want me to tell you? And he said, Of course. He said it's a really easily accessible book. It's called the Bible. <laughs> and I just, you know, I thought, and he told that story. I heard him tell it, and, you know, and all the humor that he can inject into it talk. But it was, we ignore the principles that are in God's word to our detriment. Now, we're not a theocracy, and, and we can't organize it exactly. We, we're not, but there are principles there around which you can organize a criminal justice system, that if you do that, again, the way I like to put it from theology is God's common grace blessings will follow. That's the way he built things. And so it's just, a, it's, it's just interesting, and we, we depart from that, and we try to do something else, and it doesn't work. In that sense, when George Bush was governor of, Pennsylvania, of Texas, it's George W. Bush, when he was governor of Texas, he, he did something which was really radical, and he was able to do it for a number of years. He brought Teen Challenge into the prisons. And um, what was happening is, you know what, Teen, teen Challenge kind of a... But anyway, he brought... Because so many of the guys struggle, and gals too, struggle with drug issues and alcohol issues and addictive issues, and so they were helping. And what was happening, it was really amazing, what was happening was the recidivism rate went from in the 80th percentile down to the 20th percentile. And you want recidivism, you repeat, you know. And everyone was trying to figure out, well, my goodness, this is fantastic, what's happening? And, and it was very simple at one level. It was hard. And so, you know, the ACLU and many other groups were trying to get Teen Challenge and others out because they're faith-based. They're, they're Christian, Christ-centered. And Bush just kept overriding it. Of course, it eventually got into the courts and the courts ruled in the favor of the ACLU and so on. But you just see, you see something so ludicrous, something that's really working and really transforming lives. Nope, we can't do that because that's religious. So most of these laws that the Lord is passing down are in the New Testament, and they carry forward. Now, not these, not all these specific things, uh, Woody, because remember, in the New Testament, Rome is running everything. But what is being taught as the principles for which Christians are to organize their lives are the same principles. Exactly. Exactly. Huh. How, how does 70 times 7 forgiveness flesh out with... How does 70 times 7 right? Uh, 70 times 7 forgiveness. Oh, forgiveness. forgiveness. Uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, restitution. Doesn't 
doesn't Jesus model of forgiveness kind of cast out restitution? I'm not sure I would agree with that. Um, when, when Jesus is teaching forgiveness, Peter says to him, Lord, how often should we forgive? Um, and Jesus, I think seven times, the rabbis taught four. Peter goes, said, let's say seven. And Jesus says, I want you to have 70 times seven, meaning you can't really quantify forgiveness. You just keep on forgiving. But isn't it accurate, though, to say that forgiveness is one dimension, but restitution and justice is another dimension of God's world, God's economy of things. So you can have forgiveness, but you still have the need for restitution. In other words, let's just use an example. You you steal something, okay? And it, you spent the money, you can, but you now, you, you, you will be forgiven. The person hopefully can forgive you, you'll be forgiven by society, but for you to be restored, you must, you must, there must be restitution of what you've stolen. That's what Colson was talking about. Let's set up a system where there is forgiveness, there is the possibility of rehabilitation, but every single thing that you do that violates the standards of society, you must seek restitution for. That bears out recountability, and it builds into a person, well, you know, at least that's what God wants. It's always up to that individual whether they'll do it or not. So to me, and I hope I'm answering your question, the way God sets it up and the way I see it operating, forgiveness is one thing, but restitution is another thing, injustice. You know, like, I mean, an example of that is Dave, King David. You know, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, actually organizes the murder of her husband, Uriah, is David forgiven for that by God? Yes. yes, absolutely. Read Psalm 51. Absolutely. But does David have to live with the consequences that his terrible acts, yes, he does. He has to, unfortunately, because that's, that is, it affects his family, it affects the society, it affects the kingdom. Uh, it's, a, it's a tragedy to read it. So David experienced forgiveness, yes. But does David need to work through the consequences of what he did? So a Christian, let's just hypothetically, a Christian who knows the Lord commits an act of premeditated murder. Can they be forgiven for that? Yes. But will they have to pay the price for what they've chosen to do? The way I understand the law here in the Old Testament, as well as the, the royal law, which is what Jesus and James talked about, there's still a system of justice. Okay. Justice and forgiveness are two separate things. Thank you. That's a great question. Is that uh, also a reason why they have the sanctuary cities for... That, that's correct. That's correct. That was the motion to settle down and then they convene after one of the years. Well, yeah, right. God provided a way because this, this was a society where revenge and restitution becomes a family matter. And so if you accidentally kill somebody, you're out. Right. But they can go to a city of refuge. They can. And revenge is different from restitution. That, totally. Totally. And that's one of that. You, these are, we have yet to read a verse from the Bible, but that's all right. But the, you're, you're raising something that is really, really important. God is not wanting them to build a society based on vengeance. Vengeance is not the basis for justice. What does God say? He says it in Leviticus, and Paul repeats it in Romans chapter 12. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You do not seek vengeance. You seek justice. And that's, that, that man, I'm telling you, that was a revolutionary system uh, not system, a revolutionary idea and principle to interject into a society in the ancient world where personal and family, clan, tribe, revenge was what it was all about. And God is saying, I don't want you, I don't want you to organize society like that. And I'm going to provide I'm going to provide a system of justice where revenge can be dealt with. And if a man accidentally kills a man or working out in the field or the family's going to say, we're going to get him. He killed our son. We're going to get him. The man flees his city of refuge, 
and is able to, he has to present his case to the elders, he has to prevent, but he will find justice. So this family that's seeking revenge, you know, the Michael Corleone, Godfather kind of revenge, if you're familiar with that classic book or classic movie, but that's not, that's not the society God wants to build. And so it's, it's a society where you set up systems of justice that are based on accountability, restitution, and equity. The law applies to everybody, not just you know, an upper crust or a, the masses. It applies to everybody. And the king, that's what David said, the king is not absolved from this system. The king is guilty. The king must pay. And that goes back then to the... The, the time of Exodus, where the, 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 all the other people, Esau, all the civilization around them, mm-hmm. are, are tribal based, absolutely, and, and they are vengeance based. That's exactly right. So they're, they're end up. That's right. And God wants Israel to rise above that, yes. and and not be like everyone around them. And that's what it's so, that's what's so revolutionary about this. And that's why it's it gets boring because it's such detailed. But God wants him to set up a, a theocracy where he is the, the king, so to speak, but based on his principles. And as they follow those, they will experience his covenant blessing. As they do not follow those, he will, they will experience his covenant discipline. In and, the uh, city of vengeance, you say that they had to make their case to the elders. Could the elders reject that and... And uh, ship them out yep. where they uh, Yes, for, yes, for a they could. Of time. The, the judge, the the elders, you know, they would be the elders of the city that sit at the gatehouse. They they would decide uh, whether that man could find refuge. In other words, evidence has to be presented. When there's something about seven years or something in a city refuge, or I, I I just don't exactly recall a period of time that they could remain or yes, or, I mean at, at least a year. A the, year. The, the elders could even make it longer, but at least a year that person could find refuge in the city of refuge. That's an, that is an amazing dimension of the graciousness of God there. Setting this up in this, as, as you were saying, in, in, a, in a world where vengeance and tribal vengeance, clan, it was just the, and if you know anything about the Middle East today, that's still the way it is. And in the Arab Bedouin tribes, that's still the way it is. That is still how they run their society. One of, the, one of the challenges in Syria is if the Alawite clan is over, which is the Assad, they're the one that ruled it for a couple decades. If Bashar al-Assad is overthrown, the other, you know what the other Syrian tribes and clans are going to do? They're going to get revenge in the Alawites. Now, I'm, I, I don't mean to get into the politics of 2017, but that is a real reality of the Middle East. Israel is the only one it doesn't fit. They, it doesn't fit. Israel doesn't hasn't organized their society like that. And so it's just it's that whole tribal clan way of thinking is still very much a part of Middle Eastern worldview. It really is. Can we get into the Bible now? Okay, I just I'm trying to lay the groundwork so that you're understanding all of this. Otherwise, you did, we're just reading stuff that. Doesn't necessarily uh, make sense. Okay. We'll have more questions for sure. There's another question. Oh, good. Okay. Because I wasn't going to answer it if there was. <laughs> In verse, um, verse thirty-three. Uh, well, just um, verse twenty-six of of twenty-one deals with slaves and restitution and compensation. Verse twenty-eight through thirty-two deals with animals. If, you know, if an animal, a bull, gores a, a human being, what happens? Again, it's just establishing this system of justice where every, virtually every conceivable act that can occur, voluntary or involuntary, the society where there's justice, accountability, restitution, and equity. It's just, it's really quite important. Now, verse 33 begins... Uh, and it goes on through verse 15 of chapter 22, deals with property issues. If anyone uncovers a pit or digs one and fails to cover it, or an ox or a donkey falls into it, the one who opened the pit must pay the owner for the loss and take the dead animal exchange. 
So you you know you have your own piece of property, your work piece of property, and dig a pit or you know a well or something like that, and animals fall in. You're accountable for that. How do you apply that to today? What the heck does that mean? Because you're always saying, what's the significance then, and how does it relate to today? How does that specific verse relate to? Well, today, today they would relate to liability issues, right? I mean, today, if you dig a pit on your yard and I'm walking along and I fall into it, you're accountable for what happened. Think about swimming pools. In this insurance, you have to have. <laughs> right? But it's just, I mean, you know, that's why. Can I make another comment here? But that's why throughout the United States and throughout the Western world, when you go into courthouses and systems of justice, what do you see? A copy of the Ten Commandments. And you, because Western law and Western systems of justice all argue it starts with this. This is where it started. The whole idea of Western justice and jurisprudence is based on the law of Moses. And then Roman society, Rome, when they established the rule of law in their empire, they're taking the same principles. So, I mean, this, this is to try to govern personal accountability and responsibility and restitution to provide a system of equity. So, so if you dig something and somebody's hurt, you, you're, you're accountable for that. You're liable. Well, yeah, I mean, we would call it the liability law, and you can be sued. I mean, all the things that, yeah. But, <laughs> well, anyway. Did I did I answer your? I mean, that's you're you're answering you're asking something that again spells out. This is really the basis of Western law. It really is, and I think it's kind of neat. If anyone's bull injures the bull of another and it dies, the two parties to sell the live one and divide the money and the dead animal equally. I mean, just like I mean, you think it's extending to animals? Why? Because animals are personal property. Usually a person's livelihood revolves around a bull or an ox or a sheep or whatever. Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 22. Whoever steals an ox or sheep or slaughters it or, or sells it must pay back the head of cattle for the ox and for, for sheep and for the sheep. Now notice, this. What is, this, what is chapter 22 doing? It's fleshing out the Eighth Commandment. Thou shalt not steal. It's fleshing that out. What does that look like? As the moral law of God revealed, now, taking that as the basis for the ethical and legal structure of society, what's the Eighth Commandment going to look like? If personal property is of value to God, he gives it as a stewardship, and it's yours. It doesn't belong to him, it's yours. I'm coming to Tom and Dave. It doesn't belong to Tom, it's Dave's. You don't have the right to take that animals, anything. So all the law is doing is if you steal, look at verse 2. If a thief is caught breaking in and struck a fatal blow, the defender's not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender's guilty of bloodshed. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. But if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for the theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox, donkey, sheep, they must pay back double. Now I want you to notice, notice things there. In verse 1, must sell, pay back. Verse 3, you see the word, I'm reading NIV, so the word is restitution. And then the end of verse 4, must pay back double. Restitution, deterrence, accountability is built into the system of justice. <clears throat> and, I mean, it's just how do you organize theft in a society where God values personal property and God values the protection of that. Verse 5, property damage. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or a vineyard, lets them stray, and they graze in another person's field, restitution must be made from the best of the livestock's owner in field or vineyard. If fire breaks out or spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns shocks of grain or standing grain or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. You and I are very familiar with that. That's exactly how we organize our society. I love verse 7 and following because 
Remember, in the ancient world, uh, as you get a little bit closer to Greece and Rome and others, you start to see it, but there weren't any banks. You know, they're, they're, like we were in, the, in, in First National and the graciousness of, of, of Joel and arranging for us to be able to meet here and so on, but there wasn't anything like this in the ancient world. It's an agricultural society, so what do you do? Well, I say to Joel, Joel, I'm going on a trip. Would you keep my $4 for me? Because I don't want to carry it with me. It's too, uh, and so Joel becomes my bank. I leave it with him. I chose him because he's a banker. So what happened? If anyone gives a neighbor silver or goods for safekeeping and they're stolen from the neighbor's house, the thief, if caught, must pay back double. But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges and they must determine whether the owner of the house had laid hands in the other person's possession in all cases of illegal possessions of an ox, a donkey, sheep, a garment, or any other lost property about which somebody says, this is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges. And the one whom the judges declare guilty must pay back double to the other. So you have a whole bunch of possibilities here of personal property and what... By the way, when you see that phrase, again, NIV translates it, before the judges, before the judges, what does that mean? Every town had a wall around it. And the main gate of the town, there was a gatehouse, pretty long, about the size of this the, uh, rectangular table arrangement that we have. And the eldest of the city would sit there each day. And so what that would mean, if, you, if, if, if there's a case where you're saying this guy has taken illegal possession. He's taken my ox and my donkey, but you can't tell him whose it is. You've got to go before the judges. And so if it's mine, I've got to present evidence that that's really mine. They're really my ox. And if I can prove that he stole them, then his restitution is he must pay double what he stole from me. Deterrence, justice, restitution. But you know, that, that's a challenge, isn't it? Because the Bible will say, we won't read it here, but we'll see in, if you go into Deuteronomy and into Leviticus, when you make a charge like that, you have to have, there have to be two or three witnesses. That's a, that's a pretty high standard. In the United States of America, can you be charged with a crime and to be one witness and found guilty? Yes, one witness will do it. Now, it has to be significant, but one witness, but the Bible says at least two or three witnesses. It's just a pretty high standard. Otherwise, you don't have a case. So I'm just, this, this system that God is setting up is significant. It's detailed. It requires verification. It requires equity and, and, and accountability. And um, verse 10 is how you deal with giving your neighbor your animals for safekeeping. And if it dies or is injured or taken away while no one's looking, the issue between them will be settled by taking of an oath before God that the neighbor did not lay hands on the other person's property. The owners to accept this, and no restitution is required. Wow. So what does that tell you? Make sure you really know the character of the person to whom you're entrusting your animal. Now, every single one of you in this room, I would totally entrust you with my donkey. I don't know about Woody, but I think almost all of them. It's all, what's it saying? If you're going to trust somebody with your stuff, make sure you know what they're like. So it's up to you. It, the, the onus is on you because then if something happens, they take an oath before the Lord, I swear, I did not kill your animal, or I did not allow him to, or whatever it is, and you must accept that without restitution. But if the animal is stolen from the neighbor, restitution must be made to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by all an animal, the neighbor shall bring the remains as evidence and shall not be required, which is a real possibility. All right, now I... I don't mean to bore you, but this is just going through scenario after scenario of how God wants them to handle all of these issues in building a society based on justice, restitution, accountability. 
and uh, equity. <clears throat> now, what happens in verse 16, sorry, verse, uh, uh, yeah, verse 16, is fleshing out the seventh commandment. Kind of the social dynamics, but dealing with uh, sexual issues to a degree. How do we handle that? What's the value? You should not commit adultery. The core value of society, a family, of marriage, of recognizing in what's in the book of Malachi, a covenant between a man and a woman to which God is the witness. Malachi chapter 2, verse 14 and following. And so... If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price. You would perhaps know that as a dowry. In the ancient world, actually up until fairly recent in human history in the West, and by I mean fairly, I mean like 150 years ago, almost always there was a dowry associated, a bride price associated with a wedding. And she shall be his wife. But if the father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. That is the man who seduced her. The word isn't rape. The word isn't rape. The Hebrew word for seduce has the implication that there's mutual consent to this. But this is a patriarchal society, and if she seduces a virgin, sleeps with her, they have sexual intercourse, he's to marry her. Pay the bride price, marry her. If the father doesn't want that, still has to pay the bride price. All right. Any comments on that? I don't think there's anything terribly difficult about that. The Levitical Code and in Deuteronomy, there are many, many verses that deal with this. Much. This is just giving us a sum. But I want to draw your attention to verse 18. Do not allow a sorceress to live. That's how the NIV translates that. What's a sorceress? Yeah, fortune teller. I don't think I don't think I've heard anybody use the word sorceress in a sentence in 35 years. But fortune teller, um, I often travel on Cass Street, <laughs> and uh, right on Cass, about 76th and Cass, there is a very large sign, palm reader, and there are certain days of the week where there's a discount. If you come, what's a palm reader? <laughs> um, there are telephone numbers you can now dial where you can have your fortune told, future told. Um, this is something that is fleshed out in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. And a variety of labels are used. Nation, necromancer, all of those different words. The Bible says, do not allow them to live. That's it. Next verse has something else. Next verse deals with bestiality, but do not allow sorcerers to live. Why is God so hard on divination, sorcerer, uh, palm reading, Necromancy. It opens doors. Explain. It opens doors into pagan religions and other gods. All of these things, and again, there's a lot of detail in Deuteronomy 18, verse 9 and following. All of these things were a part of pagan worship and pagan practice. But you know, again, as you go through, it's in Deuteronomy 18 and in other parts of the scripture, this also opens the door to the occult. It opens the door to the world of Satan. And so God is adamant. There's no ambiguity in the law on this. Anyone that practices all of those things that are in Deuteronomy 18 is is to be killed. 
absolutely you can't compromise you can't let it there you know you've got to take radical action and so you know now we live in a nation where the first amendment is important to us and so on so um it probably wouldn't do for us to go around putting palm readers in jail and putting them on the execution line and killing them that would not be something acceptable so for you and me as christians um the exhortation of the old test uh, excuse me the new testament stay far away from these people you possibly can have nothing to do with this and that's um that's that's a fascinating uh, it's a fascinating part of our culture today. Um, I don't know how much you know about this, but President Lincoln, his wife uh, Mary Todd, she had seven séances in the White House, and one of them Lincoln attended and mocked it and made fun of it. But uh, they, the relationship between President Lincoln and his wife was a difficult relationship, but because she lost two of her boys. And someone had introduced her to the possibility of being able to contact her dead sons. And that's what she was trying to do. Nancy Reagan uh, hired an astrologer who came into the White House after President Reagan attempted assassination. The president tried to condemn that, but if you know anything about the strong personality of Nancy Reagan, she just she did that because she was fearful of what would happen to her husband after that assassination attempt. Um, Hillary Clinton is supposed to have been in a seance type of situation. We had a conversation with Eleanor Roosevelt. So those kinds of things are part of our culture, even at the highest level. And it's, it is popularized in our culture. Today uh, on uh, the television station, I, w- I, I read an article on that not too long ago. The number of programs that either directly are talking about this, there's one called Charmed and others where you just, this, this is just a part of the, the, the program or it's alluded to. It's very much a part of our culture. The Bible says, stay as far away from this as you can. Because if you trust me and believe in me, you don't need the occult. That's the domain of Satan. Stay away from it. And so, I mean, I wanted to explain that because it's in, in the material here in, in Exodus, it's just one verse, one sentence, then he moves on. But as, uh, I forget who said it, but this was very much associated with the pagan religions all around Israel. But it also is something for you and me in 2017 to take real notice of this. Don't see as close, how close you can get to this. Stay as far away from it as you possibly can. Because if you trust God and believe in his sovereignty, you don't need any of this. Okay? I mean, I'm, I was preaching. I took two minutes and preached. But it's just that I wanted to explain why that's... It's just one verse, and he moves on. Now, verse um, 19 um, deals with something that was very, very common in Canaanite religion. The Canaanite, Baal, Baal worship was very grossly immoral, and it had involved sex with animals. And so that's, the Bible's just saying, anyone who has sexual relations with animals should be put to death. No ambiguity, because again, this connects with the pagan religions of the, of the culture into which I'm sending you. This is the land I'm giving you. And you're going you're gonna to be around people who practice you're, you're to take care of them. That's part of Joshua's and the, the conquest. But don't do that. I can't, because again, it's associated with something that's pagan, but it also violates the creation ordinance of God. Sexual intimacy is between a man and a woman in marriage and nothing else. And then, again, very categorical. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than Yahweh is to be destroyed. Commandment number one, you have no other gods before me. Do not make any images of God. Very categorical. So what's the delineation between put to death and devoted to destruction? Um, thank you, Glenn. This is the second time you've asked a question that I didn't want to deal with. 
it is um, is literally put under the ban. What that means is, um, let me, uh, I'm, I'm answering your question. I didn't want to answer it, but I'm answering your question. Let's suppose that you, in your household, Glenn, set up um, the image and worship of Canaanite gods. How are we to treat you in a system of justice, restitution, accountability, and equity? Or to put you under the ban. We kill you, we kill your wife, we kill your children, we kill all your animals. So your, your whole clan is right. Exactly. Well, not your whole clan, just your family. It's just your nuclear family, not the whole clan. Okay. But, I mean, that's, that's what God will give as the directive to Joshua in the conquest. All of Canaan is placed under the ban. And God is specific. Kill every man, every woman, every child, and every animal. I'm giving you those cities, but cleanse those cities of all idolatry, of all paganism. Don't let them live. Don't, don't let them live in the community with you. Don't mix it up with them. This is your land that I'm giving to you. And for 450 years, this is what God said to Abraham, for 450 years, I will allow their iniquity to build up to where I will then judge them. And you will be the instrument of my judgment. Canaanite society was horrible. I mean, it was absolutely horrible society. Thoroughly pagan, thoroughly immoral, thoroughly unjust. And Israel, to whom God was giving this land, could not coexist with them. And so God said, "This is you are my instrument of judgment." Did they have to kill the animals so that there wouldn't be a temptation for false? Uh, charges against people so you could build up your own herd? I, I think that was part of it. I think that was well, part of it. That's but also part of their wealth. Uh, well, that's what I, it's to every, you are to purge the land of everything. Uh, in Judeo Christian law, that really never came across. No. No. There's nothing comparable to that in. Uh, in, in 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 Christian law or in even societal law that comes from these kinds of foundations, nothing like that. But now, I, again, I, I wasn't going to address this, and Glenn had asked the question. But putting under the ban, under destruction—that's really what it means: thorough going purging of idolatry. That's really what's going on here, and that is hard for us to understand that, but. Let me ask you this question. Do you have evidence from the Old Testament of what happened in Israel when they don't do that? Now, you're supposed to say yes to that. I mean, we do. We, you have all the evidence of what happens when Israel doesn't do that. And, yeah, I mean, you, you, it, in, in the conquest, in the period of the judges, and then in the early, in the monarchies. And even think of King Solomon. What does Solomon do? He marries the wives. He builds a whole palace for the daughter of Egyptian Pharaoh when he marries her. And if you, uh, uh, none of you have been to Israel with me when I leave my church to Israel, we stand on Temple Mount and I point across to the southeast. There is the Mount of Abomination. And you can see it. That is where Solomon put all the pagan temples to all the pagan gods of his wives. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Solomon, the wisest man, the son of David. And he does something as he gets older. He does something which is an abomination to the Lord. And the favor of God is lifted on Solomon. Remember what God said to Solomon. Because of what you've done, what was he going to do when he died? 930. I'm going to divide the kingdom. And the kingdom is divided. Jeroboam launches a revolt against Solomon's son Rehoboam, and the northern kingdom is formed. And they trace that, the Bible traces that to the idolatrous tolerance of King Solomon. See, when God gives such a categorical command as this, there's a reason for that. And you and I, are, you and I do not live in a theocracy where we execute people who worship other gods. But it's a caution to us. Be careful be wise, be discerning 
in your toleration of the occult and in your mixing with people of other faiths. Be a witness to me, of me to them. We want them to come to faith, but be very, very discerning, be very wise. Okay. Now, what I want to do next week is uh, summarize, I want to say one more thing, so don't close anything yet. We're not done yet, but I want to give you, what I want to do is I want to get into chapter 23, and then a couple times, then we take a little bit of a break in terms of the law, because chapter 24, I want to go back to that covenant that I gave you, the treaty, the Susan and Vassal, where the people ratified this, the people agree to this, and then, then I want to take a little, uh, the text, take a little break. And I want to go, as Moses is up in the mountain, the golden calf in chapter 32. So we're going to, some of the details of some of the sacrifices, we're, we're going to skip some of that, summarize it. But. So I'm trying to give you hopefully an understanding, and I hope we're achieving that, of the kind of society and civilization God wanted to build in Israel. Unlike anything else in the ancient world, and every one of these commands has a really significant purpose. Now, as we close, I just want you to notice, verse 21, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, the alien, the people who come into your culture, come into your culture to trade. Because Israel's located on two major trade routes, a trade route went up along the coast called the Via Maris, and a trade route that went up the mountains of Jordan. Israel owns both of those. Foreigners are going to come into your land all the time. What's the text say? Do not mistreat them. Why? Because you were once a foreigner. You were in Egypt for 400. You know what it's like to not have a homeland. And then look at this. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. Because in the ancient world, the widow or orphan were the most destitute of people. There was no social security system. There was no safety net. There was no Medicare, no Medicaid. Nothing like that. Plus, the, every, all property passed from male to male. And so if a man died leaving a wife and children, they were in destitute condition. And the best example of that is read the book of Ruth with Naomi. She and her husband, because of a, a famine, went to Moab to get enough food. Their two sons found Moabite wives, and one of them was... Ruth, and then they come back to, to Bethlehem, to, to, to Judah, and Naomi's in destitute situation, and then Boaz marries Ruth. And so it's just saying, care for these people. Care for the needy. Have compassion on the needy. And the Bible fleshes this out. The book of Amos, one of my favorite minor prophets, condemns the northern kingdom because they didn't do this. So God is setting up a system again, a civilization of, of justice, restitution, accountability, and equity. It matters how you treat people. All right, so tomorrow we'll, we'll get into a couple more things, and we're going to look at the ratification of the treaty. How did the people accept this? What did they do as a sign of their acceptance? So I hope you're with me. I hope you're, this is not an easy thing to study, but if you follow and understand this, it really doesn't make sense what God's trying to do here and how unique Israel was to be. All right? Father, we're grateful for the privilege that you give us to study your word. I thank you for these men. We're studying uh, the synopsis of the law here in Exodus, and this is not easy studying. This has difficult aspects to it because in some ways it's so foreign to us. We don't live in an agricultural society. Uh, we don't live around pagan civilizations that are thoroughly antagonistic to everything we believe, although that increasingly is occurring. It's important for us to see, and I think this is the point, Lord, the kind of society, the kind of civilization you wanted them to build, rooted in your values and your moral law, and that just is flushed out in everything they did. Um, Lord, I, I'm thankful for this because so much of Western law is based on these concepts, and it's, uh, it's to our detriment when we ignore these. 
So in our own personal lives, Lord, I want to ask every one of us here to recommit ourselves to you and to your values and also to commit ourselves to representing you well. Because how we live reflects what's in our heart and reflects our faith and trust in you. We want to be men of God, men of faith, men who trust you, and men who represent you well. Please enable us to do that. To the glory of your Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week.